All right, once again, brothers let's, and sisters, let's take out God's word and open to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we will look at the same text that we looked at last week, verses 3 through 14, as it is densely packed with lots that we didn't even get to cover last week. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. <clears throat> now in a, a verse that we'll get to in a few weeks probably... Ephesians 1 verse 18, Paul actually says he wants the Ephesian believers and us to know the riches of what we have in our salvation. He wants to know, wants us to know the riches of what we have in Christ. And a large part of maturing as a Christian is exactly that. A large part of us maturing in our lives with Christ is coming to understand what has really happened to us in our salvation. That's a big part of maturing as a believer. So many problems in our Christian lives and so many problems in the church today stem from Christians failing to understand all that they have and all that they are in Christ. Whether it's a failure to forgive yourself or a failure to forgive others, whether it's legalism, whether it's apathy when it comes to evangelism, whether it's a lack of assurance of salvation, these all stem from a failure of Christians understanding their salvation, understanding what they have and who they are in Christ. And so today we're going to look at that from Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Now you need to know today we're only looking at what Paul says about our salvation here in this text. There's a lot more to it than that. Right? The, the New Testament is just full of all kinds of things that we need to spend the rest of our lives learning about our salvation. We're only looking at parts of it today here in Ephesians 1. So I don't want you to think this is the long and the short of it. This is not exhaustive. This is just what Paul says here about our salvation. This is part of the task of us seeking to understand who we are in Christ and what we have. And so let's read our text, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. The word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, 
to the praise of his glory. Now, if you were not here last week, last week we went over this same text and last week we covered this idea of predestination and the will and the plan and the purpose of God. And so we're not going to be hitting those things this week. If you read through that text with me just now and thought, I wonder what he's going to say about that. That was last week. So you can go back and listen to that sermon, perhaps on our website or on our podcast feed. But this week, I want to focus in on four things that Paul shows us that Christians have received because of Jesus' death on the cross. Four things that if you're a Christian, four things you have received because of Jesus' death on the cross. Let's go through them. Number one, redemption by his blood. Redemption by his blood. You can see this in verse 7. Verse 7, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Now, what does that word redemption mean? Your mind might immediately go to what what some of ours go to, a redemption story, right? Everybody likes a good redemption story. Someone goes from being disgraced and disrespected to successful and loved by all. But that's not what this word redemption here means. Redemption here means paying a ransom price in order to set a captive free. That's what redemption here means. It means paying a ransom price in order to set a captive free. Who's the captive? It's us. We are the captives. You see, before Christ, outside of Christ, we are captives to sin. We are held captive to sin. Sin is, you might say, our master, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, outside of Christ. We are slaves to it. And not only sin, we are held captive, Hebrews 2 tells us, held captive to our fear of death outside of Christ. Without Christ, the fear of death and what comes after death holds us captive in so many ways. Even those of us who would say we're not afraid of death, even so many in the world who say, I'm not scared of dying, do all kinds of things to avoid it, all kinds of things to prevent it. All kinds of things to push it away, out of sight, out of mind, farther and farther down the road. At least I don't have to think about death. Before Christ, outside of Christ, we are captives to sin, to the fear of death, and also to a debt that we cannot pay. We are captives to a debt that we cannot pay, a debt we owe to God, the debt that comes from our sin. And we cannot pay it ourselves. We owe a debt larger than we could ever give. And so before Christ, we are captives. And so we need to be set free. God has set us free by paying the ransom price for our release. God has set us free by paying the ransom price for our release. And what was that price? Redemption by what? His Blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the blood of Jesus Christ is the most valuable substance that this world, this earth, has ever seen. It's the most valuable substance this earth has ever known. Think about cosmically what was going on when that first drop of Jesus' blood hit the ground of this earth that God created. It's the most valuable substance that has ever hit this ground. Think about value for a second. How do we assign value to something? Well, I always think of two things. 
How rare is it? And what's its purchasing power, right? To think of the value of something, how rare is it? And what is its purchasing power? What can you get in exchange for that, right? And when you consider those two things, it becomes abundantly clear. The most valuable substance this world has ever known is the blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more rare. There is nothing with a greater purchasing power. Jesus' blood was the price, the ransom price, that God paid for our sins. Jesus said it himself in Matthew 20, 28, where he said he did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? To give his life as a ransom for many. This is the price that was paid to set us free. Redemption is what we have in the gospel and in Jesus' death on the cross. If you remember that great hymn that we so often sing by Fanny Crosby, Redeemed, right? It says, Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by what? By the blood of the Lamb. So in Christ, our first, uh, our first thing that we receive, our first blessing that we receive from Jesus' death is redemption. Redemption by his blood. The Father has redeemed us from being a captive to sin to the fear of death, and most importantly, to the debt that we owed him that we could not pay. Now, second, we have, from Jesus' death, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus' death provides you with the forgiveness of your sins if you are in Christ this morning. Look at verse 7 once again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, And then in verse 4 also, in verse 4 he says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Blameless before God. Essentially meaning your sins are not counted against you anymore. There's no blame assigned to you for your sins. Jesus has wiped it away. Because of Jesus' death we have forgiveness. Consider for a moment the worth of knowing that your sins are forgiven. It's, it's really easy as Christians, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, to pass right on by from this. But consider what it is worth to know that your sins are forgiven. Consider how so many in the world are desperately seeking that peace, that assurance to know that their sins are forgiven because they know their sins and they feel the guilt And no matter how many good deeds they do, they can't seem to make it go away. And they will try anything to make that feeling go away. Counseling, drugs and alcohol, even embracing a philosophy of this world that says you shouldn't feel guilty about anything. You should embrace your desires, do whatever gives you pleasure, and don't feel bad for it. That's what the world's preaching to us right now, right? Do whatever gives you pleasure. Whatever desires come up within you, naturally, do them. Give full vent to them, and don't feel guilty. But get a person to open their heart to you, and they will tell you the guilt is still there. No matter how much this world tells us not to feel guilty, it's still there. This world can preach all it wants about how you shouldn't feel 
guilty for your sins, but it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It's a modern idea. It's very modern, but it does not work. In his book, Confess Your Sins, John Stott quotes who was at the time, John Stott wasn't, he quotes a man who was the head of a large mental hospital in England at the time that he wrote that book. And he quoted the man as saying, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. You cannot put a price on the peace that comes from knowing your sins are forgiven. It's worth everything. Try as we might, we will never be free from sin in this life, right? We'll never be free from sin. And so the question is, if we'll never get rid of sin until our death, how can we have peace now while we're alive as sinners? We can't, we can't put our sins away. We can't get 100% free of sin. We will always struggle with sin, even those of us in Christ. So how can we have peace as sinners? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is that pearl of great price that we would sell all we have to get. That's how much it's worth to know you are forgiven. You can tell me my sins aren't really that big of a deal, but I know better. My greatest need is not for someone to minimize my sins. And my greatest need is not to hide my sins from everybody and to act like I'm not such a bad sinner. Those aren't my greatest needs. My greatest need is for someone to look my sin dead in the face for what it is and then take care of it once and for all. My greatest need is not for you to tell me it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. And my greatest need is not to act like I'm better than I am. My greatest need, our greatest need is for someone to look at our sin in all its ugliness and all the guilt that comes with it and to to see it for what it is and to identify it for what it is without minimizing it, without sweeping it under the rug, and then to really deal with it, to genuinely put it away. Only Jesus can do that. You see, when you come to Jesus, initially you are brought to that horrible place of honestly facing up to your sins. And it's no fun, and it hurts, and it scares us. But then he actually deals with it. He actually takes care of it. And the healing on the other end is real and deep and effective. And everything else is fake. It's just masking the problem. In his book, The Great Divorce... C.S. Lewis tells a fictional account, a fictional account of people from hell, souls in hell, who are allowed a trip up to the outskirts of heaven. And they even have a chance, if they so choose when they get there, to stay. Now, this is a fictional account. It's not based on the theology of the Bible in every way. But these souls from hell take this bus ride up to the outskirts of heaven and are met by angels introducing them to this place. And they have the choice and most of them choose not to stay. Most of them choose not to remain. 
Because it's, it, it goes against their sensibilities. It goes against their feelings that they've developed. But there's one part in that book that is particularly striking. There's a man that will be referred to as I read this excerpt as the ghost. He's referred to as a ghost because the, the, the souls from hell aren't, they're, they're like half there. They're half people, so to speak. They're not fully formed people. And so this man, he, he's been on the trip and he's brought along his pet lizard that lives on his shoulder. The pet lizard is sin. And he meets an angel, and the conversation goes like this. His pet lizard is becoming annoying. He's becoming a bother. And the angel says, would you like me to make him quiet? Well, of of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, ah, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It is the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, well, that's a further question. I'm I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it, because up here, well, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please really don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it will be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Well, honestly, I I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think over what you said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be most silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why, why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor, and I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me in pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you just kill the blasted thing without asking me before I knew? It would be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. And then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. And then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. 
I admit I've, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh, almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. Oh, you're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Oh, go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost. But he ended up whimpering, saying, God, help me. God, help me. The next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I have never heard on the earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it, while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broken-backed, on the turf. This is our sin when we come to Christ. Are we willing to let him kill it? Are we willing to let him look at us? And I mean look at us in all of our darkness, in all of our vulnerability, Are we willing to let him come in and clean house? It is not fun. It hurts, but the healing on the other end of it is true and effective healing. Everything else is fake. Everything else is masking the problem. In Christ, we have genuine forgiveness for our sins. Third, because of Jesus' death, we have an inheritance from God. Look at verse 11. In verse 11 in our text, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Have you ever had a relative leave you something in their will when they passed away? Perhaps they left you some small items of sentimental value, perhaps pieces of furniture, or perhaps something bigger. Perhaps they left a house or land or large amounts of money. Well, when you come to Christ, you receive an inheritance from a father who is more wealthy than all the billionaire CEOs and kings of the world combined. Notice in verse 11 how it says, we have obtained this inheritance, we've obtained it, but then in verse 14, it says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So two things are happening here. Verse 11, we've already obtained it, but verse 14, we haven't acquired possession of it yet. And so it's yours, but it's waiting for you, right? This inheritance, if you're in Christ, is yours. It is, but you, you, don't, require, you don't acquire possession of it until eternity. It's waiting in heaven for you. It's like in that movie, Batman Begins, and young Bruce Wayne loses both of his parents to a murder. And then the people who are in charge of Bruce Wayne's dad's empire come up to him and they say, we'll look after the empire. And when you're ready, it'll be waiting for you, right? 1 Peter 1.4 talks about how this inheritance, this inheritance which is ours, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. The New Testament writers often speak of us as heirs We are heirs of God or heirs with Christ. This happens multiple times in the New Testament. In fact, 11 times by my count. What does this mean that we are heirs of God or heirs with Christ? 
Well, think of someone who is an heir to the throne, right? That's how we use that language in our day. An heir to the throne, the next in line to be king or queen. You might think of the the Queen of England, perhaps, and the next king of England. They have an inheritance coming to them that is quite large. Now, perhaps you're hearing all of this and you're saying, yeah, but I've never received anything like what you're talking about. I see other people get money and all kinds of possessions as an inheritance passed down to them. I see those kings and queens get what's coming to them. And I look at all of that and I say, well, that must be nice. Must be nice that other people have rich family members to pass down to them all of this nice stuff. Well, in Christ, you get adopted into the family of God. If you come to Christ, God will adopt you into his family and you will be his child. The God of the universe who owns everything that exists becomes your father and you become his child and one day he will welcome you into his dwelling place and give you an inheritance of riches that is greater than all the treasures of the world in christ we have an inheritance waiting for us and then finally the fourth thing that paul mentions in our text in christ because of jesus's death we receive the gift of the holy spirit The gift of the Holy Spirit. Until that time, when we go to God and get our inheritance, until that time, Paul tells us we have a down payment. We have proof that God is holding our place. Look at verses 13 and 14. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee... Or some translations read, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit, the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance. Scripture tells us at the time of our baptism, God gives us his very own spirit to dwell inside of us. Now, the spirit is often a concept that is hard for us to understand or vague at least right we we tend to understand much better god the father and god the son but the holy spirit it's always been tricky for christians and i think one of the primary reasons is because god tells us we receive the spirit at the time of our baptism but there's not like a a place that i can point to in my body or a feeling that i have to tell you that's where he is that's that's how i know he's right there right You can't point to a specific place or a specific feeling. But God's promise in the Bible is more certain and gives us more confidence than any physical feeling would ever have given us. The Spirit does many things in the life of a believer. Through the Bible, we learn the Spirit gives us power to fight and defeat sin in our lives. The Spirit grants us spiritual gifts to serve God and His people He helps us to develop and cultivate a heart and a life that is more and more like Jesus. But here, Paul tells us, the Spirit is God's guarantee of the inheritance that is waiting for us. The Spirit is like God's pledge to us. I'm holding your place. Recently, Owen and I went to see an NBA game. We saw Pacers' sons in Indianapolis, right? And 
When you buy tickets to something like that and your son's really counting on it, every now and then you get this feeling like, oh, what if it doesn't work out? I really need this to work out. I hope I did everything right. right? I hope, hope when we get there it's going to work. Like our tickets will actually let us in. The worst thing that could happen is we get there and we come up to the arena and then you know, we try to scan and, and they don't let us in. It's the worst thing that could happen. My son will be devastated. Right? But every now and then you have those little thoughts and then you just go look at the tickets. Just go look at them. It's, yeah, it's right there. It's the right game. The date's right. It says NBA licensed on. It's going to work. Right? I'm reassuring myself. I've got the tickets. The tickets are the, the pledge that when I get there, I will be let in. God has given us his spirit as his pledge. The spirit's not just a pledge. It's more than that we just said. But here it's talking about the spirit as the pledge, the guarantee, the down payment of the inheritance that is waiting for us from the Father. And so, brothers and sisters, all of this to say, know who you are in Christ. So many problems in the Christian life, so many problems in the church come from Christians not knowing what they have and who they are in Jesus. If we know who we are in Christ, we will be effective in our service to God and others. If we know who we are in Christ, we will be strong against the attacks of Satan and the temptations of the world in our own flesh. If we know who we are and what we have in Christ, we will be confident of our salvation. And if we know who we are in Christ, we will be deeply, deeply thankful to God for what he has done for us in Jesus. Each week... Here at Columbia Christian, after God's word to us, we take a few moments to speak back to him. Right now, we're going to give you just a few moments of prayer time, moments of silent individual prayer. And we ask each and every person every week, we've heard from God. Now let's respond back to him. We give this time for individual prayer because we know that the word's going to hit us all in different ways. We have different ways that we need to respond individually back to God. And so we give you this time now, a few moments of silent prayer. We ask you to pray to the Lord during this time. And after we pray for a few moments together, we'll come back and we'll have a time where anyone who needs to respond to God's word in a public manner can do so. But before that time, let's pray for a few moments together.